0: Every church and every Christian should experience the supernatural as it relates to their walk with and relationship with God. We know that God is real. And if God is real and all powerful as he is, then his expression in our lives in this realm ought to have some element or uh, scent of, or sense of, the supernatural. Along with it. Now that's very real and it's very true. However, it gets tricky in that supernatural things, for the most part, are invisible and intangible, meaning that you cannot see the source of them, though sometimes you see what uh, they do, and you can't touch them. How do you describe it? And in that, it becomes a little tricky because what the question is is the source of the supernatural that you're seeing. We know that we live in a world that is owned by God and thus it's full of light. But we also know that this world is corrupted and fallen and under the control of Satan and therefore there is dark. And because we're operating as physical creatures in a spiritual realm, when the supernatural manifests itself, we have to question the source. Where in the world is it coming from? Now, the Corinthian church was certainly experiencing the supernatural in their services and also in their individual lives. They were walking with God. They were filled with his spirit. There was a vibrancy and a vitality to their Christian faith. And so they were experiencing God and things were happening in their services. And so they wrote to Paul for clarity. They asked the question. They said, how do we know if the things that are happening in our services that are supernatural in nature, if those things are from God, or if they're from the flesh of someone who's just trying to draw attention to themselves, or if they're from a source maybe of the dark side who's seeking to distract or to draw people away from Christ. How is it that we know we're seeing these things happen but some of it isn't sitting right. And so Paul takes the time in three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, to discuss some of these spiritual, supernatural, manifestation-type things that happen when the eternal, invisible God comes into the realm of human flesh and tangible substance, and how do we discern and understand what these things are. And so Paul basically gives to them some guidelines as to how to recognize if something supernatural is from God or not. And the first guideline that he gave them back at the beginning of of chapter 12 is to take note of what that spirit or what that manifestation does in terms of either glorifying or distracting from Jesus Christ. That is that if something comes in that draws attention to itself or draws attention away from Christ, then that should be a marker in your mind that it is not of God because the Holy Spirit will never in any way diminish Jesus or not bring glory to him. That's the, um, the paramount ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify and elevate Jesus Christ. However, Paul says, if it does glorify and lift up Jesus then you're on the right track of thinking first thing, yes, this is of God. It's supernatural and it's legitimate. Then Paul goes on and he explains that when we see the supernatural, there should be a pattern or something recognizable to it. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is, though mysterious, extremely consistent in the way that he does things. He doesn't change his mind or do things just kind of randomly and out of order. He has created an order and he himself lives within that order that he's created. And so Paul gives to them in the verses that follow the order of God's um, interweaving into our realm and into our dimension. He says that there are spiritual gifts that God has given to each one of us. If you're a born-again Christian here tonight, then you have at least one, but probably a combination of spiritual gifts that God has given to you that make up your calling and the work that he has given you to do while you're here on earth. And so there are gifts, and those gifts are definable. They're listed in Romans chapter 12, uh, That those seven things that we talked about last week that God gives to his people. So he gives gifts. Then, secondarily, God provides ministries wherein those gifts can operate. There's a whole different spectrum of types of ministries that exist within the body of Christ where those gifts can operate. Then, there are different operations. Those gifts work in different ways. Two people might teach, but they teach in different ways. They operate within that gift in different ways. Two people might give, One might do it uh, very discreetly. One might do it a little bit differently. Some people do it with practical service. Other people do it with financial giving, but it's giving nevertheless, different operations. So operations of those gifts. And then finally, he gets into the manifestation of the spirit through those gifts. In other words, when you use your gift in service to the Lord, God shows up in that ministry that you're performing in a supernatural way. And that's where Paul takes off and launches off and says, that's where we see the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom. And we see faith and we see gifts of healing and we see miracles taking place. And we see uh, tongues sometimes being spoken and then an interpretation of those tongues being given. But all of those things are given by the Holy Spirit to whoever needs it at whatever time while they're using their gift in service and operation for the Lord. And that's what Paul has basically said all the way up through uh, verse 11 of chapter 12, going into the gifts, the ministries, the operations, and then the manifestations. But there's a question that's left unanswered and it's where we pick up tonight. And that is, why? What's the purpose for these gifts and the manifestation of the spirit through the gifts that God has given to his people. God doesn't do things without reason. So what's the reason why he's given us these gifts? What are they for? And so we pick up... in verse 12 and there's three reasons tonight uh, uh that answer that question as to why that span the rest of chapter 12 and then through chapter 13 and so the first reason why god has given gifts and the manifestation of his spirit through those gifts is for the health of the body of christ and so he begins in chapter uh, 12 verse 12 saying this he says for as the body and he's speaking of the human body there that that's your body and my body, this carcass that you and I uh indwell and inhabit and 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 uh, take care of so carefully. He says, "For as the body is one." and has many members, many parts. In other words, your body is one body, but it has a hand, it has a head, it has feet, it has toes, it has internal organs, it has a bone structure, it has a nervous system, it has a digestive system. I mean, it's almost innumerable. If you were to begin to uh, um, segregate and and just label each part of the body and, and what it is, there are thousands of body parts that make us what we are, but yet all of those things work in tandem to make one. And that is us. It's you, it's who you are. All those things work together. For the body is one and has many parts and all the members of that one body being many are one body, he says, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, and that's singular, are we all, that's plural, baptized into one body that's singular whether we be jews or gentiles whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit for the body the body of christ is not one member but many not one part but many and so just like a human body has those thousands of parts that all work in tandem to make one person so also the body of Christ is designed by God that every one of us as individual as what our face looks like or what our fingerprint says that we are and and our gift and our calling and the place where we're gonna serve and bear fruit and bring glory to him and attain joy in that service for ourselves, all of those things work together with every other part of the body to make us that one body of Christ all baptized by him into one body through one spirit for one purpose, to glorify Jesus Christ. He says, now therefore, in light of that, looking introspectively at ourselves in verse 15, he says, if the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, am I not of the body, or I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? In other words, here's the first thing that can happen to a person that is in the body of Christ, that has a gift and a calling, is that they might think, well, I want someone else's calling. I, I know God has made me. The Bible says that he knows the number of hairs that are on my head. The Bible says that he knew my substance and in the frame of my being while I was yet in the womb. The Bible says that he knew all of my days before any one of them was ever figured out and that my name was written in his book before the foundation of the world. Every single thing that I am is known by him. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 that he has before ordained good works that I should walk in them. So everything in my life is already known by him and everything that I've been given spiritually by way of gifts and opportunity and even the time in which I live within the world, all of that has been ordained by God. And I have a choice. I can either embrace what it is that he's made me and what he's given me, or I can say, well, I don't really like that calling and I'm impressed by someone else's and I really wish that God had made two of someone else and none of me. And that would make me a whole lot happier. And by saying that, or even possessing that attitude, what you are essentially saying is, well, I am an ear, but I want to be a foot. And so because I can't be a foot, I'm going to choose not to exercise my faculties as an ear. Now, what if for one moment your human body did that? What if all of a sudden your hand decided that it didn't like to be the hand, and so therefore it was no longer going to serve the purposes of the body. Now, what would that do? It would frustrate the rest of the body, wouldn't it? And it would also incapacitate the rest of the body and make it less effective than it should be. God gave us two hands because we need two hands. And if God made a part for the body and put it in the world, then that means that that part of the body has a place to serve. And if it chooses not to fulfill that role because it doesn't like what that calling is, then it's a hindrance to the whole body in totality and god certainly wouldn't want that and it makes the body less effective paul says listen let's reason together concerning this verse 17 he says if the whole body were an eye then where would the hearing be and if the whole were hearing then where would be the smelling every part is essential it's necessary And furthermore, he goes on in verse 18 to say, but now has God set the members, every one of them in the body as it has pleased him. In other words, God's the one who's chosen you and made you who you are and placed you in the body of Christ with what he's given you for his pleasure and his service. Now here's the catch concerning that. Now that should be enough because isn't he worthy that if he wants me doing something, that no matter what it is, that he's worthy that I should operate within the role that he's made me. If he hasn't brought me to heaven yet, then he must still have something for me to do, right? But the other side of that is this, and here's the, here's the, the glory in it, is that his pleasure is our pleasure. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it's when the, the, the elders cast their crowns before the one that's on the throne, when all is said and done. And they they throw their crowns before him and they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power for you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. So all things were created for his pleasure, which means if we're created, we're created for his pleasure. And here Paul is telling us that the gifts and calling that he's given to us also serves his pleasure. Now that's his pleasure. But the Bible says that he lives in us. He doesn't operate independent of us and just send us on a mission and we fulfill that mission apart from him. But the Bible says that Christ indwells us by his spirit and that he does the work through us. So if he lives in me, then if he's pleased, then it stands that I would also be pleased because he's in me. And so here's the glory, is that when you discover what your gift is, and you embrace it, and you begin to serve and operate within it, no matter what it might be, and no matter how contrary to what you think you want to do, as that might be, when you do it, you're going to find that that's the very thing that you were made for, and it's where you find the most purpose and and most meaning within your life, because that's what he made you to do. I find it, interesting how often I don't know what I really like best. I think I do. And I kind of look down the list or look at the menu. Do you ever do this? You go to a restaurant and you don't go to a restaurant all that often. And so you don't want to mess it up. And so you look at the whole menu and you scrutinize, you narrow it down to three and then two. And then finally you reluctantly make your decision and you think, okay, this is it. This is going to be the thing I want. You order it And then you want what the person across from you has. And you realize you've got the smallest portion, you know, item or or something. It's so frustrating. Because we just don't know all things like God knows all things. And there's been so many instances in my life where what he's chosen for me that I would never have chosen for myself has been the thing that I've enjoyed the most. And so if God has given you a particular gift or calling, then to use it, you're going to find that that's the very thing that you were made for because it's his pleasure. And if it's his pleasure, then that translates into your pleasure. He has placed all the members, every one of them in the body as it has pleased him. And if they were all one member, then where were the body? In other words, if every part of your human frame was not what it was, and every single part of your body was a nose or a big toe, then what would that make you? It would make you dead and useless. And so it is in the body of Christ, is that if every part isn't isn't embracing what it was made to be and then operating within the service that God has called it to, then the body becomes ineffective or defective, even worse, or stagnant or crippled. And it's a it, it, it steals glory, it robs glory from him. But he says, but now there are many members yet but one one body something happened to me in my childhood that has stayed with me all of these years later I think I was 10 years old and uh, I played Pop Warner football I played it one year and that's when I learned that I'm not a football player but I thought I wanted to be a football player and I remember that year going to the um, first practice and thinking I hope I make quarterback and I was a late developer, so I was, you know, a real young um, and small frame for, for even the rest of the people that were there that were that age. And I got there, and I realized real quick that I was kind of the low man, um, but I still hoped, you know. And I remember uh, that there was one practice that we had. And after the practice, I remember Coach Nolte gathered the whole team around. And as we were all standing there or kneeling there on one knee and listening to the coach uh, give feedback from the practice. He called one of the players to stand to their feet. He said, Dustin Howard, stand up. And Dustin stood up. And he said, I want everybody to know what, what happened tonight with Dustin. He said, I asked Dustin Howard if he would be the center, if he would play center all season for our football team. Now, the center is the one who snaps the ball every play. The one who holds it at the beginning and then snaps it to the quarterback to start every play. And it's not a very glorious position because you're kind of on the offensive line, you snap the ball and then you just block. And you, you know, you're never going to score a touchdown. You're never going to get an interception. You might recover, you know, you wouldn't, re- yeah, you might recover a fumble, but even that, you're just, you know, whatever. It's just not that glorious of a position. Nobody tries out for center, typically. But Coach Nolte made him stand up and he said, I I just want to recognize that Dustin's response when I asked him if he would play center is he said, I will play it with all my heart every play that I'm allowed to play it, coach. And he said, that's an honorable thing that Dustin has done. So he's the center for the football team. And I share that story with you because as I was kneeling there way on the outside of that huddle, I thought to myself, what a fool. he would sell himself short like that and play center. But do you know what? Do you know what position I played? I played on the blue offense nose guard. What that meant is that I played a mandatory six plays per game because my parents paid the fee to get me in. Blue, Blue offense was second string. Second string on the offensive line, and I had the worst season of my life. Dustin... Touched the ball every play and was in the huddle every offensive play of the entire game. He was the wise one. I was the idiot. And for anyone in the body of Christ to say, well, I'm not the mouth, or I'm not whatever, you know, and I want, I wish I was this, or I had the gift of prophecy, but really I just have a gift of administrations, and who really likes that, anyways? It's so boring. And anyone who says, I'm not going to serve in the capacity that God has given me to serve because I don't like it or because there's no recognition in it, is taking themselves out of the greatest opportunity that you'll ever have in your life. And that's to glorify God with something that he has given you. And it's a foolish thing to do. Every part of the body is necessary. And if God has placed you on the earth for such a time as this, he's given you a gift and there's a place for you to serve and for you to not be operating in that capacity is to be stealing glory from God and to be stealing pleasure and purpose from yourself. Paul goes on in verse 21 to, to say um, here that the eye cannot say unto the hand that I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet that I have no need of you. So not only is it to our benefit to serve because there's something in it for us, but the second Dairy point in the health of the body that Paul is making here is that if you're not serving, then someone else in the body of Christ is also missing out. The eye cannot say to the hand that I don't need you. Now it could say that, but it would be a very foolish thing for that to do. Because imagine you go to the dinner table, you know, and you look at something and you, your eye sends a message to your brain of what that is that you're looking at and your brain says, I want that. Your taste buds have already sent the message to your brain and your nose uh, smelling senses have already worked in tandem with those things to say, I want that. And so your eye sees it where it is, identifies it, and then now the brain sends the message to your hand to reach out and grab the fork and put it on the plate so that your mouth can then eat it, your digestive system can digest it, and your body can be edified and satisfied. But if your eye is foolish enough to look at the hand and in a prideful display of arrogance, say, I outrank you, I will never, ever, ever see my cells in a pile of something, cleaning out a pile, that is disgusting, and I don't need you, hand. And the hand just said, oh, really, you don't? Let's see about that. The eye can send the message and play its part, but without the hand, the eye will never have the satisfaction of accomplishing the task that it was set forth to do. And so what does that mean? It means this. It means that your part in the body of Christ isn't just paramount to your glorifying God and experience pleasure for yourself, but it's also paramount in seeing the other parts of the body able to do their part and to receive what they're seeking to do in terms of glorifying God and, and serving him uh, as well. And, and so we can't say that we don't need each other. We need each other within the body of Christ. And so Paul goes on to say that, nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable Upon these, we bestow more abundant honor and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. And so we we, we don't degrade any part of our natural body. In fact, the things that are the most ugly and the things that seem to be the most feeble are the things that we pay the most attention to, don't we? I mean, if, if our hands are all messed up, then we get what we need to, 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 to make the skin soft and to make our nails right because, you know, we, this is just not right. They're kind of crooked. They're weird. So I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to paint the barn if I can paint it kind of a thing, you know. And so too in the body of Christ, we can't despise those that seem to have gifts that are less or that serve in a capacity that's weaker than than ours. Now, here's the amazing uh, thing about what Paul calls an uncomely part of the body. Look at verse 24. He says, "For our comely or beautiful parts have no need, but God, in His sovereignty, has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part." which lacked now what's what is he saying there he's saying that God in his wisdom has chosen that those that have the greatest need and are the most feeble to be the ones that are most honored within the body of Christ now what does that mean it means that the person who's speaking to you right now in God's view and estimation of things is one that has a greater need because I'm feeble and weak The ones that receive honor are often the ones that are the weakest, and there's a truth to that. It's interesting when you look at the apostles and who they were, and you say, why did they get to be the apostles? Why did they get to be so close to Christ? The answer is because they needed to be in order to stay in line. And as you look at the things that they said and some of the things that they did and the concepts they held, you recognize that that's true. And so sometimes someone that has a gift that seems less desirable or less fruitful or less impacting, that person is esteemed by God to be stronger and they have the ability to bring him glory in a greater way than someone who's more visible and more outward in the things that they do within the body of Christ. I believe that when we get to heaven, the reward ceremony, and there will be a reward ceremony, is going to be the upside down opposite of what we think. What we think is that the Billy Grahams and the great evangelists and the pastors that had what we consider successful churches and the authors who wrote best-selling Christian books and the worship artists that wrote the most useful songs, that those are the ones that are going to have the front rows and the great crowns and all the rest. I don't think so. I think that the people that were quietly serving and laboring away as unto Christ, receiving no recognition at all from anybody else, but just working and serving Him with the best of their ability in the shadows. The elderly widow who has nothing to give, but she can labor in prayer, and she does. And she spends hours upon hours upon hours interceding for those in the body of Christ and for those that are serving in the body of Christ and for those that are working on the front lines within the churches. For those that minister and serve children or serve in ministries like CareNet that receive so little recognition and so little esteem and that people shy away from, in a sense. But those people that just faithfully labor because that's where God's called them and that's where He's operating their gifts and using them in ministry. That it's those people that are going to be rewarded the great because Jesus said it this way He said, What is done in secret for the glory of God, that will be rewarded the greatest and the most openly but that which is done to be seen by men you've gotten your reward you've received it in the moment that you were giving it forth because you you, your motives were mixed up or it was seen it was visible everybody knows but the secret things that are done out of love for jesus those things are the things that will be honored and venerated the highest he goes he gives more abundant honor to the parts which lacked that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members, the body parts, should have the same care one for another. We have got to look out for one another within the body of Christ in the same way that we would look out for parts of our body. If we stub our toe, I mean, I don't think there is a body part that is more feeble than a toe, especially the little toe. I mean, when's the last time you looked at your little toe? I would go out on a limb to, to wager here that most of us, our little toenail is like a quarter inch long because that's how long it's been since, you, you know, we, we don't care. It's our little toe. But when you stub your little toe, don't you know it? And doesn't the rest of your body care that your little toe hurts? It does. Because it's part, it's part of us. You say, well, just cut the thing off, you know. No, we wouldn't do that, you know. We we need it. We love it. You know, I say that to my kids when they hurt something. You know, if you know, the, the little hurts, not the well sometimes I say it for the big hurts too, but you know, they go, Ah and they bang something, I go, Yeah, I'll go get the chainsaw and they go, Why, why, I so I'll cut it off, then it won't hurt anymore, you know. No, 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 not cut it off. It doesn't hurt that bad, does it? No, it doesn't hurt, you know. no we need it he says we should have the same care one for another and whether one member suffers all the members suffer with it or whether one member be honored then all the members rejoice with it and so god has given gifts to the body of christ and he manifests himself through those gifts for the strength of the entire body of christ at large we're dependent upon one another and we're dependent upon one another's gifts And let that be an exhortation to each one of us, especially if we're not serving in the capacity that we could be according to the gifts that God has given us. Your gift is needed in the body of Christ. And if you're not using it, someone else is suffering because of it. And so God manifests himself for the sake of the health of the body. The second reason why he gives these manifestations of himself uh, by way of the things that we looked at last week is in verse 27 through the end of the chapter verse 31 and that is also for the work of the ministry now the body of christ what we are sitting here tonight we are called to minister and serve one another we have to do that that's part of what we're called to but we're also called to reach the lost and there's a ministry that that we've been called into to further the cause of christ and the church and so the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit are given also for the sake of furthering the gospel. Notice in verse 27, he says, now you are the body of Christ and you are members individually. And God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps governments, diversities, of tongues. And so Paul gives a list now, not of gifts, but of actual offices that can be possessed by people within the church. Titles that are given by God to people that have gifts. And notice the first, he says apostles. Now, in the New Testament realm, there are apostles, but not in the context that we would think of as the twelve. You know, we think of the 12 apostles, those that were hand-selected by Jesus Christ. And in that regard, there are no more apostles that can say, well, I have apostolic authority, like someone like Peter or James or John. There are no more apostles in that regard. There was one apostle that was sent by the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. It says that in the book of Hebrews. It talks about the great apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. There was one apostle. There were twelve apostles that were sent by the Lamb. That would be the twelve that we read about in the Gospels, and probably it also includes Paul, being the one that replaced Judas. Maybe, maybe Matthias, the one that drew the straw. Uh, you know, we're, that's another debate for another Bible study. But there were twelve apostles of the Lamb in that regard. But there are today apostles that are sent by the Holy Spirit into the world representing the church to serve God's purposes. Now, what is an apostle? An apostle is one who lays the foundation or the groundwork for a work of God in a particular context. Now, Martin Luther, I believe, was an apostle in the context of the Reformation. That is that God was gonna awaken the church and revive it in those ages and bring the word of God back to the forefront and put a, a, a nail into the orthodoxy that was the church in those days. And so as Martin Luther wrote those 96 theses and nailed it on the door uh, you know, of that, that um, uh, monastery there in, in Germany, when he did that, and in his ministry ensued, God used him as an apostle to bring forth the Reformation and lay the foundation for what it would become. And God has done that throughout church history. That could also apply on a smaller stage. Someone who moves into an area and pioneers a local church body that God blesses and pours out his spirit upon and lays a foundation for a work of the spirit in that particular region or area. We hear about awakenings that happen in different parts of the world at different times. We hear about the revivals that happened in Wales. We hear about the Jesus movement that took place on the West Coast some 50 years ago now. And there's things that happen all the time and God uses Christians to bring those things to bear. And so someone who God uses to establish a work in that regard would be considered an apostle in the New Testament Context. They laid the foundation or the groundwork for a particular work of God. Then he goes on to talk about prophets. Prophets are those that speak by the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, which is just, we're going to get into it next week. It'll be the very beginning of our Bible study. Paul the Apostle is going to say to us there that he that prophesies, and he defines it for us, speaks unto men for edification exhortation, and comfort. And so when someone speaks forth by the Spirit of God, they're exercising the office of prophecy or the office of a prophet. It's not necessarily someone who says, thus saith God, and then speaks of some future event. It's someone who speaks and God channels his Spirit through what they say and ministers to the spirit and soul of an individual through those words. It's prophecy, it's speaking forth prophecy. I hope that happens when you come here on Wednesday nights. That this is more than just as though you signed up for Bible college and you're taking a class on 1 Corinthians and we're just picking apart words and learning uh, studies and concepts and doctrine. I hope that there's an element of the prophetic in the word that goes forth in these studies that it reaches you on a deeper level than just the intellect. That's what it means to prophesy. Then thirdly, teachers, and I hope that's happening too, and that is simply the the giving forth of information that builds the foundation of your understanding of who God is. That's what it means to, to be taught, doctrine, and so that's an office within the body, a teacher, and then after that, miracles. Now, isn't it interesting that he says after that? You would think that someone who can perform miracles and in a minute he's going to go on to talk about gifts of healings, you would think that that would way supersede someone who just sits in a place or behind a pulpit and teaches the word of God, but not in the mind of God. The Bible says that he esteems his word above his name. Now you think about how holy and venerated the name of God is, and he says he esteems his word higher than that. It says in Isaiah chapter 55, he says, as the rain comes down from heaven and the snow and it waters the earth that it may bring forth bread to the eater and seed to the sower, God says, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and the thing whereunto I sent it. God's word has power to perform that which it speaks into the lives of those that read it and hear it. And thus God esteems his word very highly. And he esteems it higher than a miracle or higher than a healing. Those things are temporary. And those things might point someone to the word where they'll hear truth and be saved and regenerated and changed. But it's the word of God always that trumps those things. So after that, then miracles, that is something that breaks scientific law, and then gifts of healings, helps, which Romans calls ministry, just someone who serves, who has that mentality to just roll up their sleeves and get in there and serve. Then governments, administrations, and then diversities of tongues, notice it's last on the list. He's going to spend all of chapter 14 talking about that, so don't be upset with me for passing over it now. We're going to get into it next week. But then notice what he says concerning these offices in verse 29. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? In other words, listen, not everyone has every gift or operates in every capacity, By the way, you should mark that in your Bible for those that tell you that if you don't speak with tongues that you're not saved or you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says very specifically and very clearly here that not everybody does. You can be saved and not have certain gifts or have God manifest himself in certain ways throughout your life. But here's how it works in a nutshell. Every one of us has a gift. As we use that gift, God shows up. That's the manifestation, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, faith, gift of healing, a miracle, something of that nature. As we're faithful to continue using that gift and let God continue using our life, he will in time and according to his purpose, raise us into an office. And by office, what I mean is one of these things that's been listed here in these verses, apostle, prophet, teacher, those that work miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. God will move you into a ministry and you'll there discover what it is that he has for you as he's placed you upon planet earth in the days that we live in. So what are we to do right now? Use your gift. Whatever it is, whatever God has given you, read Romans 12. Read the list of things that Paul says there and just ask God and say, God, give me a desire and use me in whatever capacity you wanna use me and just get in there and do it. And as you do, God will show up and as you're faithful, God will raise you up and he will do great things within your life. He finishes the chapter by saying, but covet earnestly the best gifts and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. And so it's not wrong to want gifts it's not wrong to say god i've always wanted to be able to communicate would you give me the ability to do it or god i've always wanted to pray for someone lay hands on them and see them healed would you use me to do that at some point in my life it's not wrong to ask those things god's the source and he says that he gives severally as he will so covet the best gifts ask god to use you to lead people to christ and to use you in great ways he wants to use people he longs to and so ask him And then Paul says, he finishes the chapter with a puzzling sentence. He says, yet I show unto you a more excellent way. You say, wait a minute. What do you mean way? Way to do what? We'll come back to the context for just a minute. What was the question that they asked Paul? They said, Paul, how do we discern what's of God and what's not when we're seeing supernatural things? Paul's saying, you can do it by seeing if they glorify Christ, Secondly, you can do it by knowing God's order of operations and how he works so that you can recognize it when he does. But Paul's going to go on to say there's a more excellent way. There's an even better way to determine whether or not something supernatural is from God or whether it's not. And what is that? Love. Does it possess love? Does it minister and impart and, and magnify the love of Jesus Christ to the body of Christ and to a lost and dying world. That's what he gets into next. Notice in verse one, he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, have the gift of tongues, but if I do not have charity, and that word charity is the word agape in the Greek. It's the English word love, the highest form of divine love, the love that comes from Christ. I'm going to just say love from now on. So you guys know I'm using the King James and it uses the word charity every time. I'm going to use the word love because it's love. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, then I have become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. If I have a gift from God and I can speak with tongues, but yet I don't possess love for God and for people, then my gift of tongues is worth nothing it's worth the sounding of a cymbal or the clanging of a gong it's something that will come and it will pass but it will leave no lasting impact on anybody because the gift cannot leave a lasting impact on anybody and though i have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and though i have all faith so that i could remove mountains but if i have not love i am nothing. It amounts to zero. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, have the gift of giving. And though I give my body to be burned, I lay down my life in martyrdom. But if I have not love, it profits me absolutely nothing. Here's what Paul is saying in this. He's saying, listen, a gift is good. And every one of us have them. Every one of us should want them and we should all use them. But he's saying the gifts are not where it's at. Where it's at is in the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is love, singular. Then he goes on and he he, he gives the elements of that, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in a life of a Christian is love. And that's what it is that needs to be imparted and ministered. And so the purpose, and listen, if you hear nothing else, hear this. The purpose of the gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit is so that we might minister and give away love to those that need it, whether they be in the body of Christ or whether they be outside, it's love. When Georgia and I got married and it's going back 16 plus years now, uh, we had a wedding shower and that is so fun. When you go and you register and you're an engaged couple and you pick out all the things and you just dream about your house and what it's going to look like and you pick out all these things plates and china. We didn't, we were not into that stuff, but you know, we, you see it all and you think, should we get that? No, we shouldn't. It's not us, you know, but you know, that's a great trash can. Put that down. And you're just like putting stuff down, all, all kinds of stuff. And then, and then you have the shower, and people just give it to you, and so you, you're, you're given all these gifts, and they're given wedding gifts, and we got so much for our wedding, and, and it was such a blessing, you know, But can you imagine if after our wedding, we invite you over to our house for dinner, we want to share a meal with you, And so we get so excited, we're like, "Oh, I can't wait to show everyone our gifts." And, and so we get out the finest plates and the finest cups and the china and the and the silver, the nice and the, the napkins that you have to put in the washing machine that you only put out when the people you really like come. And you know you just really deck out the table and you're just I can't wait to blow everyone away with the quality of these gifts that we received. And then they come to your house and they they open the door and they they look and their jaw boom it drops. They look at it and they go wow whoa. Those are some impressive gifts that you have there on the table. You're like, yeah, I know. Isn't it great? These are awesome. These are ours. We own them. We get to keep them. And they'll be here next time if you ever come back. You can look at them if you want, or you could take a selfie with them. But they're ours. You know, these are our gifts. You know, that, this is ours, our gifts. And they say, wow, they're a little bit jealous. They're glad to be there, but they wish they had gifts that good, you know. And so they sit at the table. But then all of a sudden you do this, you you go and you go around the table and you pick up every plate and then you pick up all the glasses and the silverware and the napkins and you put it all away. and You put it carefully back in its in its container and you know, you're sitting there going, what in the world are they doing? And so now all that's there is the bare table and you disappear into the kitchen. And then you come out a couple of minutes later and you have two handfuls of goulash. I mean, it's just in your hands and it's dripping through your fingers and it's falling out, all over the place, and 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 you they they look at you like what in the world, are you? and you're going ah oh ah, and, and you and you just splat it right on the table right in front of of your dinner guest, and then you just stand there and you look at them with a big smile on your face. Look, goulash. Do you like goulash? I made it myself. Take a bite. Take a bite. What are you thinking? I ain't eating that. I don't know where your hands have been. I don't know if they're clean. I I'm I I mean I'm polite and I'm not going to eat that. That that's some wretched stuff. You know, you just put your hands all over the goulash that you served me for dinner. Now you would you would go home then and you say that is the craziest outing I ever had in my entire life. I wish we didn't go. See, here's what's supposed to happen is that the gifts are given for the purpose of ministering fruit. It's a way that the flesh can stay out of the equation. See, I don't want me touching anything in this whole thing. There's a gift that's gonna touch the food and then put it on another gift and then it's gonna be served to a person so that they can be edified. But if my flesh gets involved, then I've defiled it and I've ruined the fruit because I've touched it and nothing that I touch, no good thing dwells in me. And so the purpose of the gifts is only to give away the fruit. If you don't have the fruit, then the gifts are useless. What if in the same scenario I showed you my plates and sent you home with an empty stomach? You would think, man, that was such a waste of time. We went there for dinner and we have to go to McDonald's on the way home. And so if I have gifts but I don't have love and I cannot edify with the use of my gifts, then my gifts are a complete and total waste. Paul says, I can speak with tongues, I can prophesy, I can understand, I can have knowledge, I can have faith to move mountains, I can heal, I can give my body to be burned, I can give away every last thing that I have, but if it is not motivated by and given for the purpose of bestowing to others love, then it is a net zero. It's a total waste of time. And then he describes what love is. And we all know these verses, if you have been in the home of a Christian, and looked at what's on their walls, then you've read these verses. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Love is characterized by patience that gives a lot of space and endures a lot of pain. It's characterized by a kindness that is tender and gentle and encouraging even in the midst of needing great patience. Notice that the two things are connected together. Love is characterized by a a, a non-jealous spirit. It is not jealous i believe that was a jab at the corinthians if you've read the epistle thus far you know that they had a problem with that love is not selfish it doesn't boast about itself it's not puffed up it's not prideful it doesn't need to be seen it doesn't need to be on the forefront it's able to be invisible it doesn't behave itself unseemly or unbecoming or in an unloving way it doesn't seek its own love is not manipulative or self-serving in the way that it operates and acts around other people. Love isn't easily provoked. It's not irritated easily at the faults or shortcomings or uh, or failings of others, or even at, at, at the wrongs that they do to us. Love doesn't think evil. It doesn't assume the worst about a person, but it thinks the best. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It's not glad when someone falls. And, 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 or is flawed or their flaws are exposed in some way, but rather rejoices in truth and sincerity and in reality. Love bears all things. Notice that. Love bears up or holds up under immense weight. You can put an incredible weight or pressure upon true love and it will not break under it. Love believes all things. That is, it takes at face value what it is told. That's why lies are so damaging in a relationship. Because love 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 calls us. It bids us to believe all things, and love hopes all things. Hope is the absolute expectation of good that is to come. And so love hopes the best for a person or for a relationship or for an outcome within it. And love endures all things. It is able to survive great pressures. The idea of enduring is that of a flame on a precious metal. And a flame cannot destroy something like a precious metal. And when you have true love, it cannot be destroyed. It cannot be broken down. It is the real deal. It is the only lasting thing. And that's what he says in verse 8. He says, love never fails. And the idea behind the word fail is not that it doesn't, that it, the opposite of success, but the idea is that it never ends because what he's about to do is give a list of things that are going to end he's going to say prophecies end things mysteries end all that ends but love doesn't end it has no ending point it'll last forever it's the only thing that arches time and eternity i'm getting ahead of myself he says as he goes on he says but whether there be prophecies they shall fail Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. All of the gifts, all of the things that we we do to serve Christ, all of those things are going to disappear. We don't need them in heaven. He says, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So he's dealing with two different time spans. You have time, where we live now, And then you have eternity when Jesus Christ comes back and all things are made clear and known. And when all things are made clear and known is he is here, then there's no longer a need for those gifts. We don't need those things anymore because the reality is right there. But it isn't until that which is perfect is come that that which in part will be done away. So the gifts are for now. Jesus is forever. And when he comes, the things that are for now will cease to be And only that which lasts forever will endure. What's the point? The point is that only love bridges both time and eternity. In time where we are now, we have gifts and we need them because we can't see all things clearly. Then we won't have gifts because they're gonna vanish away when he returns. But love exists now and it will carry over into eternity. That's the thing that's absolutely lasting. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. He's just illustrating, basically saying that right now, the state that we are in, in, in time, is that we're like children. We can't see all things clearly. For we see through a glass darkly. We see as though we're looking through a foggy mirror or in through a foggy lens. And it's it's shaded. We can't see all things. It's It's fuzzy. We have a concept, but we can't see it all. But then we'll see face to face, for now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So there's now, and for now we need these gifts and these various manifestations. Then we will not, but the only thing that will last is love. And so therefore that's the thing that we need. And so he says, now abide faith, hope, charity, or love. These three, but the greatest of these, is love now here's the point in our conclusion is that the gifts are given for the sake of ministering the fruit of giving away manifesting in some way the love of god and letting it affect and change a life and this is always what god is seeking to bring forth in the lives of his people he's always raising us to the standard of his love that's what he calls us to In 2 Peter chapter 1, when it talks about our growth, it says that all things have been given to us. But then Peter says this, but add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness add love. We're called to continually be cultivating the fruit of the Holy Spirit within our life. It's something that we need. It's an absolute Necessity within us. In First John chapter four, verse seven, John writes, and he says this: He says, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knoweth not God, for God is love. And in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And herein is love, not that we loved God." but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And the Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. Love can only come from God. It's something that's cultivated and, 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 and tempered in his presence. And it's when we're in his presence, And we we allow his love to affect our lives that then we have love to give away to the body of Christ, to the lost and dying world, and even to our enemies, those people that we love the least within this life. But it is God's quest in every one of us that this be where we are growing towards, not in our gifts, not in our calling, not in the ministry, not in the fruit that we can boast of that we bore, but that we be people that ever increasingly are growing in love. Love from God first, then love for God, and then love to his people and to all else that are in our lives. That's what we're called to. And you look at any character and study any person in the Bible that's life is held up before us, and what you see is that from start to finish in their life, what God seeks to bring forth and ultimately does in those that are fruitful is love. You look at Abraham. And you look at the beginning of his life, there was faith. He believed God and it was counted for righteousness. He walked with God and there was hope as he waited for the receiving of the promise. But where it culminated was with love. Wherein God said, sacrifice to me your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And he did it. And there in doing it, what he demonstrated is that his love for God exceeded even his love for his son. And he answered the question that God was asking, Abraham did. Do you love me as much as I love you? Because I'm going to give my son for you. Will you give your son for me? And Abraham said, yes. Love was brought forth within his life. You look at the life of David and you see the same thing. You see faith in David's life when he was a young man and Samuel dumped a horn of oil on his head and said, God has a plan and a calling. You see hope in David's life as he endured the furnace of affliction when Saul was chasing him down to persecute his soul and to take his life. But you see on that day when Saul's life was taken, it says that David wept over the news of Saul's untimely death. And he said, oh, the strength of Israel. Why? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And he wept on a day when his enemy was slain. And it says that the children of Israel took notice of it. In other words, they saw that in David was born forth the fruit of love and love for his enemies. And it was then that they anointed him king over the entire nation when love was born forth in his life. So may we receive the exhortation tonight that all things that God does by way of the supernatural interfacing with the tangible world that we live in, ultimately has its end in the cultivation of the fruit of love within our lives. And may God give it to us. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us week by week. And we thank you, Lord, that we can look through the lens of it and see life clearly and what it's all about. And so much, Lord, of what you do makes sense as we consider these things and the things that you're bringing us through. And so, Father, I pray tonight, Lord, first that whatever gift we might have, that we wouldn't lay dormant and sit on it and not use it. And then also, Lord, that this precious fruit of love would be so evident in each one of our lives, that we would be a loving church, that we'd be loving individuals, that as husbands we would love our wives like Christ loved the church, that, Lord, we would just have such a love for all of the people in our life, even for our enemies. And we know that only comes from you. So we ask you, Lord, right now for a fresh filling with your Holy Spirit, not that we might manifest a gift in some way, but that, Lord, we might know the love of Christ which passes knowledge and that we might be filled with the same unto giving it away. And so we ask these things tonight, Lord, and pray your will be done within our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.